0: Welcome back to the Hemingway this podcast, part three chapter, part eight, chapter three. Hanno doesn't seem too good. Now there's a deleted comment. Swim said the mama fishy accidentally read the next chapter and commented on the next chapter. Techrific said, save that comment for tomorrow. It looks interesting. And Swim says, it's a terrific chapter. So it looks like today's chapter reading is going to be a terrific chapter. That's cool. Techrific says, little insensitive Hanno is having night terrors and recites a poem in his half-awakened state. Ida and Tony downplaying the hardships at school. A boy like Hanno is an obvious target for the other boys to tick, to pick on. German fairy tales and educational poetry are rife with stuff that would terrify any sensible person. Hanno is clearly a very empathetic person. He clearly puts himself into the persons and the situations in these poems. All the hallmarks of a young poet in the making. Cool. Cool. The sensitive streak seems to be a genetic one in the Button comes from its fruition in Young Hanno. Let's hope it can be put to real use as opposed to Christian and not be suppressed as in Thomas. It's a good note, it's a good observation. They are creative, but none of them have a none of them have a uh, medium through which to explore it. Excuse me. All right, I'm going to read the next chapter. It's a long one, and I'm sick today, which is cool. Gotta love that. I woke up sick. So, um, I'll get stuck into it. But before I do, I'll ask if anyone is keen to do a reading tomorrow, to read tomorrow's chapter, chapter five, um... (coughs) <coughs> read it, record it send it to me um, you know, just use um, Google Drive drop it in your Google Drive folder and share the link with me um, if you are keen to do that send me a DM a DM on uh, Reddit I'd appreciate that because <coughs> um, I'm already struggling with tonight's one and it's a long chapter for some reason I don't know if it's related but, you know, I've got a sore throat, I've got all the, all the works, but I've also got the hiccups. They're settled down at the moment, but it's just like this terrible acid reflux kind of thing. So I'm, I'm dreading reading this nine page chapter and hiccupping all through it. So here we go. The senator, when he was alone again, sat down at the table took out his glasses and tried to resume his reading, but in a few minutes his eyes had roved from the printed page and he sat for a long time without changing his position, gazing straight ahead of him between the portieres into the darkness of the salon. His face when he was alone changed so that it was hardly recognizable, the muscles of his mouth and cheeks. Otherwise obedient to his will, relaxed and became flabby, like a mask, the look of vigor, alertness and amiability which now for a long time had been preserved. Only by constant effort fell from his face and betrayed an anguished weariness instead. The tired, worried eyes gazed at objects without seeing them. They became red and watery. He made no effort to deceive even himself, and... Of all the dull, confused, and rambling thoughts that filled his mind, he clung to only one, the single despairing thought that Thomas Buddenbrook, at forty three years old, was an old, worn out man. He rubbed his hand over his fa- eyes and forehead, drawing a long, deep breath, mechanically lighted another cigarette, though he knew they were bad for him, and continued to gaze through the smoke haze into the darkness a contrast between that relaxed and suffering face and the elegant, almost military style of his hair and beard, the stiffened and perfumed mustaches, the meticulously shaven cheeks and chin, and the careful hairdressing which, as hid a beginning thinness. The hair ran back into longish bays from the delicate temples, with a narrow parting on top over the ears. He was not long and waving, but kept short cut now, in order not to betray how grey it had grown, he himself felt the change and knew it could not have escaped the eyes of others, At the contrast between his active elastic movements and the dull pallor of his face. Not that he was in reality less of an important and indispensable personage than he has always been. His friends said, and his enemies could not deny that Senator Buddenbrook was the burgomaster's right hand, burgomaster Langholz was even more empathetic on that point than his predecessor Overdick had been, for the firm of Johann Buddenbrook was no longer what it had been. This seemed to be pretty, this seemed to be common property, so much so that Hurst Sturt discussed it with his wife over their bacon broth, and Thomas Buddenbrook groaned over the fact, at the same time, it was true that he himself was mainly responsible. He was still a rich man, and none of the losses he had suffered, even the severe one of the year 66, had seriously undermined the existence of the firm. But the notion that his luck and his consequence had fled based, though it was, upon inward feelings than upward-outward facts, brought him to a state of loneliness and suspicion. He entertained, of course, as before, and set before his guests the normal and expected number of courses, but as never before he began to cling to money and, in his private life, to save in small and petty ways. He had a hundred times regretted the building of his new house, which he felt had brought him nothing but bad luck. The summer holidays were given up and the little city garden had to take the place of mountains and seashore. The family meals were by his express and empathetic command of such simplicity as to seem absurd by contrast to the lofty splendid dining room with its extent of parquetry floors and its imposing oak furniture. (coughs) For a long time now there had been dessert only on Sundays, his own appearance was as elegant as ever, but the old servant, Anton, carried to the kitchen the news that the master only changed his shirt now every other day. God damn it. Every other day. As the washing was too hard on the fine linen, he knew more than that. He knew that he was to be dismissed. Gerda protested, three servants were few enough to do the work of so large a house as it should be done, but it was no use. Old Anton, who had so long sat on the box when Thomas Buddenbrook drove down to the Senate, was sent away with a suitable present. Such decrees as these were in harmony with the joyless state of affairs in the firm, that fresh enterprising spirit with which young Thomas Buddenbrook had taken up the reins that was all gone now, and his partner, Herr Friedrich Wilhelm Marcus, who, with his small capital, could not have had a prepondering influence in any case, was by nature lacking in initiative Marcus's pedantry had so increased in the course of years that it had become a distinct eccentricity. It took him a quarter of an hour of stroking his moustache, casting side glances and giving little coughs just to cut his cigar and put the tip in his pocketbook. Evenings, when the gaslight made every corner of the office as bright as day, he still used a tallow candle on his own desk. Every half hour he would get up and go to the tap and put water on his head. One morning there had been an empty sack untidily left under his desk. He took it for a cat and began to shoo it out with loud imprecautions. to the joy of the office staff. No, he was not the man to give any quickening impulse to the business in the face of his partner's present lassitude. Mortification and a sort of desperation, desperate irritation often seized upon the senator, as now when he sat and stared wearily into the darkness, bringing home to himself the pretty retail transactions and the pennywise policies to which the firm of Johann Buddenbrook had lately sunk. But after all, was it not best thus? Misfortune, too, has its time, he thought it. Is it not better, while it holds sway, to keep oneself still, to wait in quiet and assemble one's inner powers? Why must this proposition come up just now? To shake him untimely out of his canny resignation and make him a prey to doubts and suspicions. Was the time come? Was this a sign? Should he feel encouraged to stand up and strike a blow? He had refused with all the decisiveness he could put into his voice to think of the proposition, but had that settled it? It seemed not, since here he sat and brooded over it. We are most likely to get angry in our opposition to some idea when we ourselves are not quite our, quite certain of our own position. deucedly sly little person, Tony was. What had he answered her? He had spoken very impressively. He recollected about underhand manoeuvres, fishing in troubled waters, fleecing the poor landowner, unsuri, and so on. Ursuri, sorry. Very fine. But really, one might ask, if this were just the right time for so many large words, Consul Herman Hagenstrom would not have thought of them and would not have used them. Was he, Thomas Buddenbrook, a man of action, a businessman, or was he a finicking dreamer? Yes, that was the question. It had always been as far back as he could remember the question. Life was harsh, and business with its ruthless unsentimentality was an epitome of life. Did Thomas Buddenbrook, like his father, stand firmly on his two feet in face of this hard practicality of life? Often enough, even far back in the past, he had seen reason to doubt it. Often enough, from his youth onwards, he had sternly brought his feelings into line to inflict punishment, to take punishment, and not to think of it as punishment, but as something to be taken for granted, should he never completely learn that lesson. He recalled the catastrophe of the year 1866, and in the inexpressibly painful emotions which had then overpowered him, he had lost a large sum of money in the affair. But that had not been the unbearable thing about it, he for The first time in his career he had fully and personally experienced the ruthless brutality of business life and seen how all better, gentler and kindlier sentiments creep away and hide themselves before the one raw, naked, dominating instinct of self-preservation. He had seen that when one suffers a misfortune in business, one is met by one's friends and one's best friends, not with sympathy, not with compassion, but with suspicion, cold, cruel, hostile suspicion, but he had known all this before. Why should he be surprised at it? And in stronger and hardier hours he had blushed for his own weakness, for his own distress and sleepless nights, for this his revulsion and disgust at the hateful and shameless harshness of life. How foolish all that was! How ridiculous such feelings had been! He, how could he entertain them, unless indeed he were a feeble visionary and not a practical businessman at all? Ah, how many times had he asked himself that question, and how many times had he answered it, in strong and purposeful hours with one another, in weak and discouraged ones with another? But he was too shrewd and too honest not to admit, after all, that he was a mixture of both. All his life he had made the impression on others of a practical man of action. But in so far as he legitimately passed for one he, with his fondness for quotations from Gautier. Was it not because he deliberately set out to do so? He had been successful in the past, but was that not because of the enthusiasm and impetus drawn from reflection, and if he were now discouraged, if his powers were lamed, God grant it was only for a time, was not his depression the natural consequence of the conflict that went on within himself, whether his father, grandfather and great-grandfather would have brought the propane raid harvest in the blade? was not the point after all. The thing was that they were practical men, more naturally, more vigorously, more impeccably practical than he was himself. He was seized by a great unrest, by a need for movement, space and light. He shoved back his chair, went into the salon and lighted several (laughs) burners of the chandelier over the centre table. He stood there pulling slowly and spasmodically at the long cart. Ends of his moustaches and vacantly gazing about the luxurious room. Together with the living room, it occupied the whole front of the house. It had light, ornate furniture and looked like a music room, with the great grand piano, Goethe's violin case, the étagère with music books, the carved music stand, the bas-reliefs of singing cupids over the doors. The bow window was filled with palms. Senator Buddenbrook stood for two or three minutes, motionless, then he went back through the living room into the dining room and made a light there. Also, he stopped at the sideboard and poured a glass of water, either to be doing something or to quiet, quiet his heart. Then he moved quickly on through the house, lighting up as he went. The smoking room was furnished in dark colours and wainscoted. He absently opened the door of the cigar cabinet and shut it again, and at the table lifted the lid of the little oak box, which had playing cards, score cards, and other such things in it. He let some of the bone counters glide through his fingers with a rattling sound, clapped the lids shut, and began again to walk up and down. A little room with a small stained glass window opened into the smoking room. It was empty except for some small, light, serving tables of the kind, which fit one with another. <coughs> On one of them a liquor cabinet stood. From here one entered the dining room, with its great extent of park tree flooring and its four high windows hung with wine-coloured curtains looking out into the garden. It also occupied the whole breadth of the house. It was furnished by two low, heavy sofas covered with the same wine-coloured material as the curtains and by a number of high-backed chairs standing stiffly along the walls. Behind the fire screen was a chimney place. Its artificial coals covered with shining red paper to make them look glowing. On the marble mantel shelf in front of the mirror stood two towering Chinese vases, The whole story was now lighted by the flame of single gas jets and looked like a party the moment after the last guest is gone. The senator measured the room throughout its length and then stood at one of the windows and looked down into the garden. The moon stood high and small between fleecy clouds and the little fountain splashed in the stillness over the overhanging boughs of the walnut tree. Thomas looked down on the pavilion which enclosed his view on the little glistening white terrace with the two obelisks the regular gravel paths, and the freshly turned earth of the neat borders and beds. But this whole minute and punctilious punctilious symmetry, far from soothing him, only made him feel the more exasperated. He held the catch of the window, leaned his forehead on it, and gave rein to his tormenting thoughts again. What was he coming to? He thought of a remark he had let fall to his sister, something he had felt vexed with himself the next minute for saying— It seemed so unnecessary. He was speaking of Count Strelitz and the landed aristocracy, and he had expressed the view that the producer had a social advantage over the middleman. What was the point of that? It might be true, and it might not, but he was... But was he, Thomas Buddenbroke, called upon to express such ideas? Was he called upon, even to think them, should he have been able to explain to the satisfaction of his father, his grandfather, or any of his fellow townsmen how he came to be expressing or indulging in such thoughts. A man who stands firm and confident in his own calling, whatever it may be, recognises only it, understands only it, values only it. Then he suddenly felt the blood rushing to his face as he recalled another memory from farther back in the past. He saw himself and his brother Christian walking around the gardens of the Meng Street house involved in a quarrel, one of those painful, regretful, heated discussions. Christian was artless with artless indiscretion, had made a highly undesirable and compromising remark, which a number of people had heard, and Thomas, furiously angry, irritated to the last degree, had called him to account. At bottom, Christian had said at bottom every businessman was a rascal. Well, was that foolish and trifling remark in the point of fact so different from what he himself had said just to his sister? He had been furiously angry then. He had protested violently, but what was it that sly little Tony said, when we ourselves are not quite certain of our own position? No, said the senator, suddenly aloud, lifting his head with a jerk and let go, the window fastening. He fairly pushed himself away from it. That settles it, he said. He coughed, for the sound of his own voice in the emptiness made him feel unpleasant. He turned and began to walk quickly through all the rooms, his hands behind his back and his head bowed. That settles it, he repeated. "It will have to settle it. I'm wasting time, I'm sinking into a morass, I'm getting worse than Christian. It was something to be glad of, at least, that he was in no doubt whether he stood. It lay then in his own hands to apply the corrective, relentlessly. Let us see now, let us see what sort of offer was it they had made. The popengride harvest went in the blade. I will do it, he said in a passionate whisper, when even stretching out one hand and shaking the forefinger, I will do it. It would be, he supposed, what one would call a coup, on a, an opportunity to double a capital of, say, 40,000 marks current, though that was probably an exaggeration. Yes, it was a sign, a signal to him that he should rouse himself. It was the first step, the beginning, the accounted, and the risk connected with it was a sort of offset to his moral scruples. If it succeeded and he was himself again, then he would venture once more, When then he would know how to fold Fortune and influence fast within his grip. No, Messrs. Stranach and Hagenstrom would not be able to profit by this occasion, unfortunately for them. There was another firm in the place, which, thanks to personal connections, had the upper hand. In fact, the personnel was here the decisive factor. It was no ordinary business to be carried out in an ordinary way, coming through Tony as it had. It bore more the character of a private transaction and would need to be carried out with discretion and tact. Herman Hagenstrom would hardly have been the man for the job. He, Thomas Buddenbrook, as a businessman, was taking advantage of the market, and he would, by God, when he sold, know how to do the same. On the other hand, he was doing the hard-pressed landowner a favour, which he was called upon to do by reason of Tony's connection with the (coughs) Maybooms. The thing to do was to write, to write this evening, not on the business paper with the firm name, but on his own personal letter paper with Senator Buddenbrook stamped across it. He would write in a courteous tone and ask if a visit in the next few days would be agreeable, but it was a difficult business and the less slippery ground upon which one needed to move with care. Well, so much the better for him. He, His step grew quicker, his breathing deeper. He sat down a moment, sprang up again, and began roaming about through all the rooms. He thought it all out again. He thought about her, Marcus Hermann, Hagenstrom, Christian and Tony, he saw the golden harvests of Pappenheim wave in the breeze and dreamed of the upward bound the old firm would take after this coup. Scornfully repulsed all his scruples and hesitations, put out his hand and said, "I'll do it." Frau Pappenheim opened the door and called out, "Goodbye!" He answered her without knowing it. Gerda said good night to Christian at the house door and came upstairs. Her strange, deep-set eyes wearing the expression that music always gave them. The senator stopped mechanically in his walk, asked mechanically about the concert and the Spanish virtuoso and said he was ready to go to bed, but he did not go. He took up his wandering again. He thought about the sacks of wheat and rye and oats and barley, which should fill the lofts of the lion, the walrus, the oak and the linden. He thought about the price he intended to ask. Of course, it should not be an exaggerated price. He went softly at midnight down into the counting-house, and by the light of her Marcus tallow candle, wrote a letter to her von Mayboom of Pom- Poppenrade, a letter which, as he read it, through his head feeling feverish and heavy, he thought was the best and most tactful he had ever written. That was the night of May 27th. The next day he indicated to his sister, treating the affair in a light, semi-humorous way, that he had thought it all over, and decided that he could not just refuse Herve von Mayboom out of hand, Leave him at the mercy of the nearest swindler. On the thirtieth of May, he went to Rostock, whence he drew, drove over, drove in a hired wagon out to the country. His mood for the next few days was the best; his step elastic and free, his manners easy. He teased Clothilda, laughed heartily at Christian, joked with Tony, and played with Hanno in the little gallery for a whole hour on Sunday. Sleeping, sorry, helping him to hoist up miniature sacks of grain. Into a little brick red greenery and imitating the hollow, drawling shouts of the workmen, and at the burgesses' meeting of the third of June he made a speech on the most tiresome subject in the world, something connected with taxation, which was so brilliant and witty that everybody agreed with it unanimously, and Consul Hagenström, who had opposed him, became almost a laughing stock. Ooh, that was a good chapter. longy but a goodie. I liked him exploring his new house and all these empty spaces and regretting having all that buyer's remorse. Oh, but I do fear that we've already predicted what's going to happen here. Something like a crop failure. And boom, there goes his investment. Alright guys, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.